Uh, this morning we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So please follow along if you have your Bibles with you. We also have the words up on the screen. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Wade. Good morning. Try that again. Good morning. As, uh, as Wade read, we will be in Ephesians chapter 2. If you haven't already done so, I'd encourage you to uh, pick up your Bible and turn there. We'll be in verses 1 through 3. And as you do so, uh, I wanted to talk for a second about the NBA draft for a couple of reasons. One, uh, because uh, it is uh, just about a month away. Uh, two, because they just had the lottery to figure out where each team was going to land. And three, because there's been something really fascinating in the news this, this, uh, this past few weeks or so uh, regarding the NBA draft. And there has been someone in the news uh, named uh, LeVar Ball. And uh, he has been in the news not because he himself is up for the draft, but because his son is available for the draft and is expected to go number one, number two, number three, something like that uh, in the upcoming draft. But the reason that this man, LeVar Ball, is so fascinating to me is because he has this penchant, this tendency uh, to get all kinds of media coverage on the basis of these really outlandish statements that he makes. And, uh, and so just recently, he said that his son, who is in college right now, is already a better player than Steph Curry, who's the reigning unanimous MVP of the league. Uh, not only that, but uh, my favorite statement that um, Mr. Ball has made uh, is that in his day, he said in his day, uh, that he could beat Michael Jordan one-on-one. -on -one. Not only beat him, but destroy him. In uh, his best collegiate year, uh, Mr. Ball averaged two and a half points and two and a half rebounds. That same year, Jordan averaged 35 points for the Bulls. You ever met anybody like that? Somebody who has this sort of glorious picture of the past? Somebody who maybe embellishes or exaggerates the past? I had a, a friend like that in college. A guy uh, went potluck in a dorm uh, my first year of college and, uh, and had this, uh, this, this guy that uh, I got uh, roomed up with uh, and he was strange, and, uh, and he did that all the time. I mean, he just made up these stories, and, uh, and it got to the point where the rest of us roommates, I had five roommates, there were six of us, and, uh, and, and it got to the point where we all decided, we, we have to test this somehow. And, uh, and so rather than being like mature enough to sit down with him and have a conversation and say, what's going on in your heart? Why do you embellish the truth so much and so forth? We decided to do what all adults do, and we messed with him. And, uh, and so we gave him a nickname, just a nickname, Coffee. We started calling him Coffee. He didn't drink coffee. His last name wasn't Kaufman or something like that. He wasn't like the heir to the Folgers fortune or something. Uh, there was no reason. That was the whole point. There was no rhyme, no reason. Our goal was to see how long it took until he made up some sort of story, embellishing some sort of reason for us to call him that. And so we would be at parties and, uh, and we would just call him Coffee the entire time. And, uh, and so uh, he would be asked, why do they call you Coffee? And he'd say, well, it's a long story. Uh, and then he'd change the subject. It's not a long story. We just made it up. That's the story. 
Uh, but that's what he would say until a couple of weeks after uh, saying it's a long story uh, and kind of, kind of sheepishly changing the subject. Uh, I came home, and, uh, and so we had two dorm rooms, and then we had a central sort of living area. I came home into the central living area, and he is laying on the ground with his shirt off, bench pressing the coffee table. And, uh, and so now we have a weight room there in the dorm that he could have been using, and this coffee table was made out of like particle board. So it weighed like 20 pounds. But as I walk in, I kid you not, I hear 198, 199, 200. Now, I'm just going to be honest. There's no way that he had been laying there doing that the entire time. So I did what anybody who was mature enough to do in that situation. I acted like I didn't see him and I didn't hear him. And I just walked straight into the other bedroom. Uh, that was... Uh, for a couple of days, I didn't hear anything about it. And then the next time, sure enough, the next time we have a party and somebody asked him, why do they call you coffee? He said, sheepishly, sort of, well, one time I was bench pressing this coffee table and they saw me. And so, so he just did this, manufactured this in order to have a story to go along with it. You ever met somebody like that? Somebody who embellishes the past? Somebody who is convinced that if coach would have put him in the game, they would have won state? Uh, somebody who, there's a comedian uh, that I have listened to in the past, and he calls these people me monsters. So you're like, you tell somebody about how, man, at one time I got to test drive a Porsche. And they're like, I drove the lunar module. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, I can't beat that. There's nothing I can do about that. We've probably all met people like that who embellish the past. What we're going to deal with in our passage today is going to completely take away any opportunity for us to embellish our past. There is no opportunity for us to read the text this morning and to walk away thinking more highly of ourselves uh, than we should. There is something good about remembering the past, and in particular, remembering the darkness of our past. And that's what we'll see in our text this morning. So before we get to that, I want to lead us in a time of prayer. So first, just to ask you to pray for yourself, ask that the Lord would speak to you, give you eyes to hear or eyes to see and ears to hear. Ask the Lord to help you to remember who you once were. And then pray that for those around you, friends, family members, strangers, whoever it might be, that the Lord would give us as a congregation the ability to see and to hear and to worship. And then pray for me for faithfulness, for steadfastness, for boldness with God's word. So Father, we bless your name. We pray now that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word, Lord, that we might not be driven to despair as we consider our past, Lord. We might be driven to worship knowing what you have done for us in your son. It's in his name we pray, amen. Ephesians chapter two Starting in verse 1, we'll just read kind of the first few words there. And you were dead. That's where he begins there. And you were dead. The past few weeks we've been walking through Ephesians chapter 1, uh, spent about four uh, or five weeks there. And, and we've seen this movement in the text in regards to chronology, in regards to time. We've seen Paul move from eternity past and his work in, in, in these 
uh, theological concepts of, of election and predestination, which uh, if those words don't make sense or they sound like bad words or something taboo, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to uh, the audio from uh, those from Ephesians chapter 1. But we've moved from eternity past uh, and uh, into this uh, opportunity for us this week to consider our own past, our own past in time, and then moving forward next week, we'll look into the present. So there's this chronological element to the text. And along the way, we've seen lots of evidence for this concept called union with Christ, what we call union with Christ, that although we were associated with Adam in his uh, death, in his sin, in his disobedience, that we have been united to Christ. If we love and trust Jesus, we've been united to Christ, and therefore we share in the inheritance that is rightfully His because of His life of obedience and His death for us in our place. And so we're co-heirs of all that He inherits. But that also means that if Christ was raised from the dead, as uh, was part of the text from last week that Zach preached in verse uh, 20, I believe it is, talks about Christ being raised from the dead. And if Christ was raised from the dead, and if we are in Christ, there is a sense in which we must be raised from the dead. And if we must be raised from the dead, that must mean that there is a sense in which we were dead. And that's what our text this morning is talking about here. So let's begin with the word you. It says you were dead. So who is the you here? We're talking about just those who live in Ephesus, the Ephesians in particular, or maybe just Gentiles in general. The book is kind of written more from a Gentile perspective. No, there is this universality to this passage. Look in verse 3. He clarifies that the condition is that uh, he will describe as shared by all, and he uses the phrase, the rest of mankind. And this condition that he describes is a condition of death. The diagnosis that he gives is death. I give Jerry a hard time because his daily routine literally involves reading the obituary from his hometown in uh, Athens, Texas, which he calls a quote-unquote dying art, which I think is very clever. Uh, But that is part of his sort of daily ritual to go back and read the obituary and see uh, friends and so forth that might have passed away. Most of us don't like to think about death. Most of us don't like to talk about death. It's kind of taboo. It's something that we don't like to discuss. It's something we don't like to think about. We're still surprised by a diagnosis, even though we know it's coming. We should know, at least. Every one of us should know that death is coming for us. We don't like saying, though, death. We don't like saying die. We don't like saying dead. We prefer euphemisms instead, like passed away or no longer with us or he's gone or something like that. One time I was serving as a, a, a chaplain, uh, and, uh, and so part of my responsibilities uh, was to uh, occasionally go on ride-alongs with police officers whenever they would have to deliver uh, the news to a grieving, uh, to a potentially grieving uh, husband or wife who had lost uh, their husband or wife. And so uh, the first time I I did that, I was in the car with the police officer, and he was talking about it, and I was kind of asking him, how does that affect you to have to do this on a somewhat regular basis to go and to to deliver the news to someone that their loved one had passed away? And uh, so he was talking about it. But one of the things he said that I found was uh, fascinating is he said, we have to be really explicit. I have to explicitly say the words, your husband is dead. 
I can't say passed away. I can't say no longer with us. I can't say anything like that. I have to make it explicitly clear so that there is no opportunity for misunderstanding whatsoever. In the same way, Paul is going to be explicitly blunt in his depiction of our condition apart from Christ. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't beat around the bush. He says, we were dead. But perhaps you might disagree with this diagnosis. Maybe you want some sort of second opinion or something. Maybe that you doubt that you were really dead. Maybe you're just kind of mostly dead like Wesley and the Princess Bride, which is the second time I've referenced that movie because I love it and Casey hates it. And this is the only place I can talk about it. And I have a mic, <laughs> so I'm going to do it. All right. Maybe you think, maybe I was just mostly dead. So I was partly alive. I'm partly good. There was something about me that's redeeming. There's something about me that was living, and God responded to that, and the text says no. So maybe you want a second opinion. Maybe you want to go to some other places in the Scripture. Let's, let's see what the Bible has to say elsewhere about the topic. Staying in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, these should be up on the screen. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, the implication being that you once did walk that way. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Colossians 2, 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Yeah, but you might say, but those are all Paul. He's kind of like Debbie Downer, right? Uh, he's not the kind of guy that you would bring to the party. Let's see maybe what someone else would say. So let's go to Jesus, maybe. We all love Jesus, we all like Jesus. So let's see what Jesus has to say about our condition. John chapter three. Immediately after the most quoted verse in the world, in verses 19 through 20, he says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Or in John 8, 34, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So Jesus doesn't give us an out either. Same diagnosis, hopelessness, death, slavery. We call this theological concept uh, total depravity. That's what theologians call this sort of idea, which doesn't mean that some sins aren't in some sense worse than others or that some sinners in some sense aren't worse than others. I'm sure none of you in this room are responsible for the death of millions of people like a Pol Pot or Hitler or Stalin or something like that. And yet it means at the same time that, there, that apart from Christ, we share the same diagnosis and we share the same prognosis as the worst of sinners. That sin has corrupted our very being, our very essence, our very 
uh, totality of who we are, and it affects everything about us. It affects what we do, what we think, what we love, what we believe, that sin is all-encompassing in terms of who we are, and we've been affected by the fall in such a way that we love sin and we hate God, and therefore we deserve death and wrath. So there's no escaping this diagnosis of death just as there's no escaping death itself on our own. You can go vegan, you can go to the gym, you can do all of these sorts of things to clean up your life, and yet you'll still die. Likewise, you could hear a sermon like this and you could decide, I'm going to do better. I'm going to clean up my life. I'm going to stop cussing. I'm going to start giving money. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start doing these sorts of things. And it doesn't change your condition one iota because you're already dead. The Bible says that we, apart from Christ, are in a morgue, not in a hospital. You can go home from a hospital. You don't go home from the morgue. I remember the first funeral I ever went to. My best friend in high school had died. Went to the funeral there, and it was an open casket, and, uh, and, and he looked alive, laying there. He looked like my buddy. And I remember uh, before they closed the casket there and the rest of us pallbearers carried him out, that I reached in and I touched him on the arm. And it's something I've done at uh, every single open uh, casket that I've ever been to since. There's just some finality to that act. The person laying there may not look dead, but they are dead. In the same way, you may not feel dead in your trespasses and sins, and yet the Bible says that we are that we are. Not a very chipper sermon. But there's a reason that we need to know this. There's a reason that we're emphasizing this. There's a reason that we're not preaching this week all through verses 1 through 10 or something like that, that we want to stop and feel the weight of this text this morning. Consider, if you will, you're probably all familiar with the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Consider, if you will... That story, how different it would be if Mary and Martha, Lazarus's sisters, if they would have just thought, Lazarus just has a bad cold. He's got a really bad cold, and he's just kind of sleeping it off. He's just taking a really long nap. How belittling are they going to be of Jesus' miracle when he raises Lazarus from the dead, if that's what they believe? How little glory are they going to extend to God? for this work of raising Lazarus from the dead if they think he was just asleep. Likewise, how belittling is it of us if we look at our past condition and we think there was anything there that was life, that was hope, that was an opportunity for joy. You see, unless we understand that we're dead, we'll never understand what it means to be alive. Let's move on to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1b uh, through 2. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So now Paul gives us this realm of our death and the cause of it, trespasses and sins, uh, occasionally in uh, Scripture, these two uh, words have different connotations, but here uh, they're used as what's called a hendiadis. 
And Hidiatus is a, a place where an author will use two different words to express one concept. We have this in the English language as well. Uh, you'll see it all the time as things like nice and warm, or somebody says that they're good, uh, sick and tired, or something's good and loud, whatever it might be. And so the result of having hearts marred and marked by sin and trespass is death. Now, normally, dead people just lay there. That's what dead people do. They don't do much. They just kind of lay there. But Paul describes these spiritual corpses as walking. He says, we're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We don't normally expect dead people to walk unless we're talking about zombies, in which case we're all in trouble. We better hope Dan Jones has enough ammo for everybody. We don't expect dead people to walk, and yet Paul is using this metaphor that's uh, common, uh, especially in Pauline usage, this metaphor of walking as a form of living. We see that throughout this book in particular. So consider chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which, he has, to which you have been called. Now, he's not talking there about a particular style of walking, like walking like this is not worthy or something like that. That's not his intent at all. He's talking about living, live in a manner worthy. Ephesians 4, 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5, 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So to walk is to live. So what he's saying here is that we were dead in the sins in which we once lived. We're intended to see the irony there. There's an irony to our living, that even our living was death. There's a form of death that feels like life to those who are experiencing it. There's a type of life that really is death. Or to use the words of wisdom literature, there's a way that seems right to man. But in the end... It's death. And as we walk, we're following these two impulses, these two influences on our lives. Paul describes them as the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. First, the course of this world. This reminds me, this imagery reminds me of those sort of moving sidewalks that you often see in airports. Uh, I love to get on them. My purpose in getting onto them, if you get on them and you just stand still, I judge you. The purpose of those moving on the sidewalks is not so that you can stand still and take a break. The purpose is so that you can walk even faster and that you feel like you're moving at an incredible rate of speed as you're doing so. So I like to swing my arms like this as I'm walking uh, along and I feel like I'm going super fast and I just kind of laugh at the mere mortals who are, you know, walking normal next to me. The first time that I ever got to experience these wasn't actually at an airport. Uh, it was actually in Las Vegas. So whenever I was growing up, my grandparents lived uh, in Arizona, but the nearest airport for us to fly into was Vegas, and so oftentimes I would fly out there, sometimes alone, sometimes with a friend, sometimes with my brother or sister, whatever it might be, and, uh, and so would fly out there and uh, meet them in Vegas. My experience of Vegas is, was profoundly different than it would be today because it was pretty much just limited to my grandparents' motorhome and Circus Circus which was just this playground uh, for kids. But I remember the first time that we got on one of these moving sidewalks, and I thought, I'm like living in the world of the Jetsons. This is just some sort of crazy technology. And I thought, in my mind, I'm nine years old, whatever it might be, and I thought, why aren't all sidewalks like this? 
this is so great. I don't have no concept of cost or anything like that. I just think, this is great. This should be everywhere. Now, all uh, roads lead to Rome, they say. All sidewalks, uh, moving sidewalks or otherwise in uh, Vegas lead to uh, casinos. But what Paul's saying here is the course of this world is leading somewhere. It's leading towards death, darkness, and disobedience. That's why Jesus will say things like, do not love this world. He's not meaning don't love the people in the world. He's meaning don't love the passions, the principles, the desires of the world. No one drifts toward holiness. Like if you do nothing, you don't drift toward holiness. You don't drift to be made to look more like Jesus. You drift away from that. The world and all its desires and designs are drifting, drifting towards darkness and disobedience and death. And Paul says at one time, we too were blissfully kind of drifting on this lazy river of sin leading to hell. The second influence beyond the course of this world that he mentions is the prince, the power of the air, who is Satan. In ancient cosmology, if you were to ask somebody, where do demons live, where do angels live, and so forth, they would have just kind of had this conception of them living somewhere between heaven and earth, somewhere in the air, uh, and so forth. And by referring to the enemy as a prince, what Paul's meaning here is he's acknowledging the current authority that Jesus has. Elsewhere, Paul will talk about uh, Satan as the God of this world. Not to say in any sense that he is like God, but to ascribe authority to him. The same sort of ideas when Jesus comes and he, uh, I'm sorry, when Jesus is tempted by Satan and Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of this world. There's a sense in which Satan has authority over this world and this prince's power is being exercised daily in those Paul calls the sons of disobedience those whose father is the epitome of disobedience itself. This would make much more sense in a first century Jewish concept, uh, conception, than it might uh, to us initially. Very few of us in this room, if we were to poll ourselves, very few of us in this room uh, have the exact same profession as our fathers. But in the first century, that would have been almost universally true. If your father is a carpenter, what are you doing? You're a carpenter. If your father is a fisherman, what are you doing growing up? You're working on a boat. And whenever you get older, you become a fisherman. Uh, Paul's using that imagery. If your father is the prince of disobedience, then you yourself are marked by disobedience. Let's look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We see here there is no room for us as believers to have this us versus them mentality when talking about our past. Over the next couple of weeks, we will announce a, a few people who have joined us as members of Parkway, and so we'll announce them. And that As elders, we've had the opportunity to read over their testimonies over the past couple of weeks. And one of the uh, sort of interesting things is you read the testimonies, and they are so diverse. We have somebody that was saved at a Billy Graham revival. Uh, we have someone uh, that was saved because uh, he had a buddy who just prayed for him and invited him to Bible studies over and over. We have someone who was saved because he went through a terrible divorce and he had nothing left, and, uh, and so he went to a church. 
uh, and, uh, and got saved through that. So this really diverse testimonies, and yet there's this common, really consistent, nearly universal theme to all of these stories, and that is, I grew up in the church. I grew up with good, godly, Christian parents. The stories are different, but the setting is common. Most of them grew up in a Christian home. But you know what? That didn't necessarily protect them from sin, and it certainly didn't guarantee their salvation. We talked about this uh, in theological equipping before, that the son of a Jew is a Jew. The daughter of a Jew is a Jew. The son of a Christian is not necessarily a Christian. That no one is born a Christian. You can be born a Jew. You can be born a uh, Muslim. You can be born a Hindu. You can be born Buddhist. No one is born a Christian. You're born a sinner. And it's only when you're reborn that you love and trust Jesus. Now, does this mean that babies who die whenever they're babies, that they're necessarily condemned? Not at all. That's not what that means at all. In fact, we're going to post a blog about that this Thursday. So if that's something that's been on your mind and on your heart, if you read this text and you say, oh my gosh, there's no hope whatsoever for children if they're born into this state of sin, that is not the implication that we should pull from that. So I'd encourage you to read that blog on uh, Thursday when we post it. But the scripture is saying that we're all in this together in Adam. We're all born into this state of sin. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We were all like the rest of mankind. If you were to kind of walk through a mall or walk up and down the street and you pull the average American, maybe even if you were to go into the various churches throughout McKinney and you pull the average churchgoer and you ask them this question, are people basically good or basically bad? you would get an overwhelming response that says people are basically good. They do bad things, but they're basically good. The Bible says the exact opposite. We are essentially evil, wicked, depraved, desperately in need of grace. That sure, people have the capacity to do good things, but imagine if you will, our state apart from Christ is like someone who helps someone cross the street. It's a good deed but we do it only so that we could pickpocket them along the way. That's the imagery that the Bible gives for us in our pre-Christ condition. That even our good deeds are not done for the glory of God, which is the standard of what is good and right and faithful. And this isn't just learned behavior. Paul says that we are this way by nature. We are by nature children of wrath, which is a fascinating and devastating phrase. Let's talk a little bit of historical theology for a second. In the early 5th century, there were two uh, major figures within the church that were having this real fierce debate over this very issue, uh, the issue of is sin something that is by nature or something that is nurtured? Is it a learned behavior or is it an inherited behavior? This trouble was brewing throughout Christendom, and you had these two figures who were debating. You had uh, a British monk named Pelagius, and he was locked in this dispute with St. Augustine of Hippo, the city, not the animal. Never argue with the hippo. Uh, and their argument was over the nature of humanity and sin. The question they were debating is this. Are people, are we all born with this innate and insatiable propensity towards sin? 
or is sin something merely that, that we merely observe, observe and copy? Is it nature or is it nurture? For Pelagius, sin was something that was not innate and natural. For him, we might even theoretically have the possibility of being sinless. You might have the opportunity for being sinless. If the conditions are absolutely perfect, you might have this theoretical possibility of being sinless. But for Augustine, sin is something which is embedded in our very nature as a result of our inheritance in Adam. Where this really plays out, not only is our understanding of who we were, but it's in our understanding of what God has done. Because what they both recognize is there is this different understanding of what grace is as a result of this. See, for Pelagius, grace is something that cooperates with our obedience. We have obedience, God cooperates with our obedience, and thus he completes our obedience. For Augustine, it's totally different. Grace is not something where God cooperates with our obedience. God's grace is what creates our obedience. That God is speaking life into death. The imagery of the world before God speaks light into it. The world is formless and void and empty. And God speaks life and light. In the same way, our hearts are absolutely devoid of anything that is good. And God simply speaks the light of the gospel into it. So, sin is not just something that we happen to do. It's who we are by virtue of his nature. So luckily, Augustine's view, the view of this church, luckily Augustine's view is the view that wins out in the universal uh, church and becomes the orthodox teaching of the church. And Pelagianism, which is the view of Pelagius, was condemned. But throughout history, we see it rearing its head over and over and over again. In our own hearts, we find it rearing its head over and over and over again as we tend to think more highly of ourselves uh, than we ought. Each generation, it seems, the church has to slay this dragon of Pelagian humanism, which neuters God of his sovereignty and robs him of the glory of his depths of his love and grace. And as a result of this natural inclination towards sin and the inheritance of the sin nature, it says that we are children of wrath, which harkens back to his previous description of sons of disobedience. In Adam, we inherit disobedience and thus inherit wrath. Maybe that seems unfair for us to inherit disobedience and inherit wrath. So just by way of an exercise, just consider, if you will, all of the times in your life when you have evidence that God's judgment against you is correct. Every bit of pride, of lust, of sloth, of lacking zeal for God and for His glory. Every bit of those things are evidences that God's judgment against us is just and that we deserve His wrath. And wrath is not something though, that we like to talk about. I doubt that this past week your friend gave you a call and said, hey, let's go talk about divine wrath. That's not something that we tend to think about it's the same way we don't tend to think about death. We don't want to talk about death. We don't want to talk about God's wrath. We might even kind of be embarrassed of the idea of God being wrathful. That's not one of the attributes of God that we like. We like God to be loving. We like God to be gracious. We like God to be kind. We don't like God to be wrathful or jealous. These are kind of like embarrassing things, almost flaws that we want to hide about God or whatever it might be. We want him to be cute and cuddly. 
I want him to just kind of smile and wink whenever we do a little sin or whatever it might be. But that's not who God is. But his wrath is also not like your father or your mother, whoever it was, who had a bad day at the office and took it out on you and just exploded for no reason whatsoever. God's wrath is a holy wrath. What is wrath? It's this upsurge of one's nature against someone or something. What is God upsurging against? He's upsurging against sin. Why is he upsurging against sin? Because not only does it rob him of glory, but it obscures our opportunity to experience joy and life and hope and so forth. So of course, God is wrathful against sin. This is why love demands wrath and justice demands wrath. See, the biblical authors, although we might in our hearts, we might have this sort of bifurcation between love and wrath, love being a good attribute of God, wrath being a bad attribute of God, the biblical authors have no uh, sort of pretense of that uh, divorce between the two. For them, those things are intimately connected. In fact, immediately after talking about God's wrath, Paul will go on in the next couple of verses and talk about God's love and God's grace. Those things are not incompatible. They're absolutely inseparable, which is why if you want to see the greatest display of wrath you have ever seen, look to the cross. If you want to, to, to see the greatest display of love you've ever seen, look to the cross. God's love and God's wrath are not incompatible. They are absolutely inseparable and as long as we play one against the other, as long as we exalt one at the expense of the other, we just recognize and admit that we don't really understand either. So as we begin to kind of wrap up our text this morning, I want to ask one question. We've talked about all of these things that Paul has described to us. You're dead. You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air that we lived in the passions of our flesh and carried out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. I want to ask this one question. Do these verses describe your past or do these verses describe your present? Paul assumes a past condition throughout. He says we were dead. We were by nature. We once lived. Paul's writing to those whom he assumes are no longer dead because he's writing to the church. Talk about being made alive next week and all that entails, but to suffice to say that for some, this is not an expression of the past, but a very real description of the present. The vast majority of the world, maybe even some in this room today, are still dead, still following the course of this world, still under God's wrath because they do not love and trust Jesus. If that's you this morning, I just want to tell you the proper response is not despair. The proper response is repentance. This morning you have an opportunity to see that you are immersed in death, immersed in darkness, immersed in God's judgment and wrath, but also to see that God has made provision for your surrender, that you're surrounded on all sides by God in his judgment against you, and yet he has made provision for you to surrender. If you would just lay down your arms, if you would just confess the futility of the life that you're living, which is really death, and embrace Jesus Christ, you will be transferred out of death into life. If you'll acknowledge that you're following a spiritual father who is evil and abusive and deceptive, 
turn to a Father who is always and only and truly good. You'll be forgiven. For others of us in this room, this is already an expression of the past. That you've trusted in Christ, and so our response this morning is twofold. To remember and to rejoice. What good is it? For in this room, when we recognize that was the past, what good is it for us to exaggerate? Like my buddy in college, or like all respect to Mr. Ball, to exaggerate the past as if we were something that we weren't. There's no good in that. There's no hope in that. We rob God of glory and we rob our opportunity to experience joy as we see the depths of our depravity that helps us to understand the depths of his love for us. The reason that we're doing this this morning, the reason that we're working through just these three verses by and large is not just because we want to beat a dead horse, but in a sense we do. We want to beat a dead corpse in order for us to see how utterly, completely, and totally wicked and depraved we are. That way we can see how utterly, completely, and desperately loved we must have been for God to have saved us. See, if you'll never know how loved you are until you see how depraved you are. If you can't see that, your appreciation, your affections for Jesus will always hit this ceiling. There's always going to be a ceiling to your affections, to your devotion, to your desire and delight in Christ. And your joy and your worship will suffer because the world is going to tell you that your hope is in your own esteem, your own self-worth, your own inherent goodness. Respond to the spark within you, the world says. The Bible says there's no spark in you. Instead, respond to God and His grace and His mercy. Your only real hope is not to esteem your own goodness, but His. At some point, we were all enslaved to sin, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. But. But what? But you decided to start over? But you pulled yourself up by the bootstraps? No. But God, Ephesians 2, 4a, but God. This short little phrase is a really consistent theme throughout Scripture. Over and over we see it throughout the Bible. In the midst of the flood it says, but God remembered Noah. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, leave him for dead. All of these things they meant for evil, but God meant it for good. Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God. And the great news of this particular exception, if you will, is that it cancels out any others. But I'm too old. Too old to repent. I've lived this way for 70 years or 80 years or 30 years, too old. But you don't know what I've done. But I can never forgive myself, but nothing. If you understand, but God, then there are no other excuses. There's no other exceptions. But God is the only antidote to the power of sin, the only prescription, the only power to raise us from death and darkness and disobedience. And we'll get into that next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this devastating depiction 
of who we were. And I pray if there are any in this room that are still in that condition, Lord, that you might exercise your grace to them, that you might speak life into their dead hearts, Lord, as you did with Lazarus when you said, come forth. There's no argument on his part. He simply responds. I pray in the same way that those hearts might. And for those of us who have tasted your grace and your mercy, Lord, I pray that we might remember who we were. Not so that we might just simply be depressed all the time, but that we might be overwhelmed with gratitude for what you've done for us in your son. So help us to remember these things as we remember his death and the taking of communion. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.